0: Okay, well, we are going to be in the book of First Thessalonians today. So if you have a Bible and you have paper, I really encourage you to write it down um, as a spirit of making disciples. I know anything that God shows us is for our blessing, but it's also always for the blessing of somebody else. So that's where we're going to be. And I saw this verse as I was prepping and praying over all of you. I'm so happy to be here By the way, and this just reminded me so much of what y'all are doing. And 1 Thessalonians 5.11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And that really reminded me of your ministry. Emily has explained the turn, the transition that you guys are making to more of a discipleship and mentorship model. And it's wonderful. It seems beautiful. So I'll be prayerfully invested in what you guys are doing, and I'm excited to hear more stories about that as we go. So we're going to be walking through 1 Thessalonians 1 and then a little bit of 2 and 3, and we're just going to walk verse by verse by verse, and I think this is a really beautiful picture for us of Paul investing his life into the lives of other newer, younger believers. So there's some really cool stuff that I think we can pick up along our way, but as I kick off, um, I will share with you a story, and I'm going to put this up actually because I think it'll help with note-taking and following along. So I have three kids, 11, 9, and 7. So middle school to first grade is our adventure this year. And my little one, her name is Callie, and she's 7. She's horse-crazy, just like her mama. And so we had the great privilege this summer of going on family vacation to a dude ranch out in Colorado, where my, it's like six miles from where my husband and I first met. And we, she got to ride her own horse all week long. It was a dream come true, best vacation ever. And so the ranch promised us that when we came back home, if kids would write letters to their favorite wrangler or to their horse, that they would write them back. And so she was so cute. And so she just looked up at those female wranglers with stars in her eyes. It was precious to watch. So when we came back, the very first thing she did was write a letter to Wrangler Maddie and Comanche, her horse. (laughs) And so we sent it off. She sent a little craft picture of herself with the Wrangler. So sweet. And I kept watching that mailbox every day because every day she would ask me, did it come yet? Did it come yet? Did it come yet? And it took almost two or three months before the letter came because there was a snafu of getting lost in the mail. But she did write. And that day when the letter came, Callie was so happy to get the letter out of the mailbox. And as I think about this book, here's what I'm remembering about that. The first thing that she looked for on that letter was Maddie's signature. She wanted to know that regardless of what it said, it was for Maddie. That's what made it so special for her. So thinking about how we sign letters, right, that's at the end. That is not the case in this book. This book, 1 Thessalonians and 2nd, are personal letters That Paul wrote to others, and we'll go through that in just a second. But interestingly, if you look at verse 1, it tells you right off the bat who wrote the letter. So it's Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And the reason that that seems kind of weird to us, but that that's identified right in the first verse, because Letters at that time were written on scrolls of papyrus paper, all raveled up. And so in order to read a letter, you would have to physically unroll the scroll. So that was identified. The authorship was identified right off the bat. So you knew who was writing and to whom. So that's why we see right at the beginning there, who is writing. And it's Paul, Apostle Paul, writing with a peer in the ministry, Silas. So he is a very established minister also. And then we see in Timothy. So Timothy is his young disciple that he is bringing along with him on this missionary journey. Already a picture of discipleship in this letter. And who is he writing to? So in verse 1, we see to the church of the Thessalonians. So who are these Thessalonians? Thessalonians. Thessalonica is a city in modern, what would be modern day Greece. It's a major commercial port town. So there's ships coming and going, lots of business and lots of things happening, cultural center of their region. And this letter was written in about AD 51. So like 50 years after Jesus was on the earth. And so this city is one that Paul and his team, after they left the city of Philippi, after the stories of being flogged and then jailed, and they're singing in the jail, and then, you know, the jailer comes to faith and he leaves, very weary, he charges boldly with his team into the city of Thessalonica. Very strategically they go there. So that's who he's writing to. And while he was there... If you look in the book of Acts, you'll see he only was able to be there for three weeks. Because scripture says three Sabbaths. So three weeks long, he was able to be there. And over the course of that time, Paul and his team shared the gospel scripture says they went right into the temple, to the religious center where people would sit and chit-chat and debate about the scriptures, which sounds really fun to me. And so he did that and he presented Jesus as the Messiah. And believers came to faith. Some of the religious folks, some of the non-religious Greeks, and it says many, um, many sort of I don't know what the word is, but they're sort of the societal high women. So kind of prominent women in their community also came to faith. So he has this group of new believers. He mentored them, built them up into this church. And then three short weeks later, the influential Jewish folks in the community who were kind of losing their position because of what Paul was presenting, went into town, gathered up an angry mob, according to scripture, and chased him out of town. And that was it. So he's writing back to this group that he loves and that he invested in and answering their questions and encouraging them to stay strong and steadfast in their faith in his absence. So that's kind of where we pick up this letter. And he also signs it in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Such a tiny little thing, and yet such a huge thing, because that was really provocative thing to say, especially when you're speaking to a Jewish audience. We've got God the Father, and on par with God the Father, we have the Lord Jesus Christ. So he's presenting him as Messiah, Savior, God in the flesh. And so he signs that. That's the authority with which he signs this letter. Okay, and so what does he say to the Thessalonians? He goes down and he says, grace and peace to you. So we're going to look at what does grace and peace mean? What does he mean by that when he says that? And I found it really interesting as I was looking into this that Paul signs at the beginning and the end of all of his letters with some form of the word grace, which is kind of cool to know. So clearly grace is a really important concept for Paul. So I would offer some information when you think about grace. At this time, it was standard for the Greek people to greet one another as they were passing, as they were writing letters, with a word in Greek called karen, C-H-A-R-E-I-N. And it meant greetings or rejoice. So they would regularly say that to one another. Paul doesn't use that word, but he uses a word really close to that, so that they could relate and he would catch their attention. And the word is "caris," Sounds a lot like carin. And that word means grace in the Greek language. And it carries actually quite a bit of punch with its meaning. It means the unearned or unmerited favor of God. It means something where the other word means rejoice, greetings. This word means that which causes us to rejoice. So grace is not just a, grace is your church name. Grace is not just a feel good pretty word. It means everything that God accomplished for us in the person of Christ. It's God extending himself through Jesus Christ. That is what grace means, right? It causes us as believers to rejoice. So he reaches out and he connects with the Greeks, the non-religious people who would read his letter or hear his message as it was read. And he pulls them in with something that would definitely catch their attention. And I have a little picture here as I was thinking about grace. And I have an umbrella and I'll push it up if I can figure out how to get it to go out. There we go. I was thinking about grace, and as I was thinking about that, I thought of the picture of an umbrella. I read a poem that I'll read to, it's just a quick line, by an American writer and poet named John Updike, and he said this, Rain is grace. Rain is the sky descending to the earth. Without rain, there would be no life. And as I thought about that, I thought about, well, grace for a Christian, what does that mean? Just like rain descending to the earth and bringing life, isn't that such a picture of what Jesus has done, right? God descended from heaven into his own creation in the person of Jesus Christ. So rain brings life. Without rain, there would be no life, he said. Without Jesus, there would be no eternal life. Isn't that such an awesome picture? That's what grace entails. That's what grace really means for us. So grace is what overwhelmed Paul years prior on that road to Damascus, where he was a persecutor of early Christians. He was going after their lives. And something happened in that encounter with Jesus that so... It was very real to him and so dramatically changed the course of his life that now he is an early leader of the church, and he is a Christ follower. Grace is real to Paul, and so that's why we see that weaved into every single one of the letters that he writes for others. Ephesians 2.8 says, For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. Right, So we've got grace, and we're pulling in the Greeks who read this letter. But there's something else that he offers in that greeting, and that is the word arene in Greek, which means shalom. And so we know he's speaking primarily and largely also to a Jewish audience. They were the religious people of the day. And their standard greeting was shalom. They would greet one another with shalom, probably kiss on the cheeks, and so he pulls them in too with this word shalom or arene in Greek, which was his common language, peace. And the, the meaning of that word is also very rich. It means the absence of conflict or war, but it goes pretty far beyond that. It means wholeness or rest or harmony. And so if we think about that, In place of spiritual enmity, right, conflict that sin brings between us and God, Jesus brings harmony, wholeness, rest. So this idea of peace, it's a restored relationship between us and God and also us and fellow women and men, right, other men. So the gospel is vertical and it's also horizontal, And if you think about that, the gospel should really change the way it can change the way we relate with God, and it should change the way we relate with other people, the way we see them, the way we treat them, because we're looking at other people through that lens of grace, unmerited favor that God has given us. The same is true for others. So it allows us to have peace in our lives that would not make sense otherwise. Paul writes this letter to a very divided community. So he's writing Jew and Gentile or Greek, right? He's writing male and female. He's writing slaves and free people. So the gospel becomes this umbrella, if you will, under which that all of us can stand and be united together, right? And that doesn't make sense to a watching world. That's not what we see in the rest of the world, but it should be attractive, for us who are in Christ. So that's that new Christian reality. And when I think about that umbrella, um, you know, this is a very compelling alternative. People should see us differently. They should wonder, why are the people in the body of Christ so different? What brings them together? Why does their dinner table or their social circle look so different than mine? And when they press in and wonder and ask those questions, we get the chance to point to Christ. We get the chance to explain why. That though is where the illustration of the umbrella ends. And I would quickly put that away because I think each one of us, if you're like me, every day we have to shower, right? In the rain of grace. We have to be reminded every day of the grace of God. I know I do. Otherwise I get going on my own and I think I've got this thing and I don't. So I put that away to remind us every single day, ladies, we have to bathe in the grace that God has saved us and invited us in and invited us to do something meaningful in the lives of others as we're going along. So he signs his letter with grace and peace and in the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's keep going. So we move along down to verse 2, and Paul says... We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. Okay, so Paul, Silas, and Timothy, that's the we, they are always thanking God in their prayers. So, what do we see very simply? We see they're working as a team, right? They're praying as a team. So, who are you praying with, right? And they're always doing it. So, this is a regular practice of their lives. They're regularly praying. I think that should. Speak to us. What is our prayer life like? Most of us, if we're honest, it's kind of lacking. So this is a good encouragement for us to be getting into a spirit of prayer and inviting others along. And he says, mentioning you in our prayers. So I am encouraged by that because I think, especially as women, we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to be perfect prayers. Many of us are afraid to pray out loud with others for that reason. But that's not what he does here. That's not his example. He says, mentioning you in our prayers. As simple as that. He's mentioning, calling out their names. And I would suggest that that tells us the faithfulness of our prayers is far more important than the perfection of our prayers. Right? The length of our prayers. So he says, mentioning you in our prayers. And what are they thankful for? So if you look in your scripture, we'll keep reading. We continually remember before our God and Father three things. Your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. So we see faith, hope, and love. And interestingly, that is the first time chronologically that we see those three famous Christian virtues mentioned in Scripture. Kind of cool to know. So faith, hope, and love. But it doesn't just say faith, hope, and love alone. What does faith produce? Work. What does hope inspire? What does love produce? We've got labor. We've got long-suffering endurance. So it's not just faith. Faith leads to action. Faith leads. The picture of the labor is this toilsome, selfless labor. It's giving of oneself, working hard, enduring suffering with patience on another's behalf. So, you know, James 2.20 says, faith without works is dead. I was reminded of a book I read this past year that some of you might have read called Love Does by Bob Goff. And in that book, it's the same picture that when we have genuine faith, it compels us toward action, right? So sometimes that might be a little overwhelming, but I would offer you and I can't do everything. But we are uniquely gifted, and God has put unique needs around us. And so as we connect in a discipleship community, we have the great privilege of encouraging one another to live out those unique gifts and reach out and be the hands and feet of Christ in one special way and responding to the needs around us. So we see that as we live out our faith in a community like you ladies are doing here. We want to encourage each other in that. So I'll move along here. We keep reading, and we're in verse 4. And so we see... Paul says, for we know brothers, and you should probably write this in your Bibles, if you write in your Bibles, brothers and sisters. So the word there in Greek is adelphoi, and it means brothers and sisters. So sweet message to us, ladies, we are included (laughs) in this. Okay, and he says, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he has chosen you. So Paul tells the Thessalonians, the new believers, this message, this reminder, they are loved and they're chosen. And the word that he uses there for loved really means beloved. And that's pretty beautiful because at this time, the Jewish audience would have only used that word beloved, agapao, for supremely great people like Moses and Solomon But Paul uses this for brand spanking new believers, and he calls them beloved. You are God's beloved. And it's the same exact word used in John 3.16, which most of us would know that God so loved the world, not just the supremely great people, the world. And so we're all included as God's beloved. So he calls them beloved, and he calls them God's elect or chosen. Just like you and I, if we get married, we love someone, we choose them, right? So we are the bride of Christ. God has chosen us for himself. And that's the reminder that he gives these new believers. Don't forget you are loved and chosen by God for something special. So how did he know that they were God's elect? And we keep reading and we see that. And we need to remind ourselves of this. So this is a great picture of coming to faith. So we see the answer to that question in verse 5. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. So the first blank there, the word of God came with power. The second one, they received God's word with, the word there means full assurance or full conviction. And I'll offer just a brief story about myself. When I was really wrestling with God, I am a very unlikely candidate to be standing in front of you right now because I was not someone who grew up walking closely with the Lord. I was doing about the farthest thing possible from that. Um, And in the midst of that mess, he pursued me. And so during that journey, one night in particular, I was dating my would-be husband, and we got stuck in a snowstorm in a car, and I had been really wrestling for months with God, kind of flipping through my Bible angrily in my room. I'm not even sure why I had a Bible in the first place, but I did. And so this night in particular, my Southern Baptist through-and-through husband-to-be and I were stuck in a car, and I peppered him with every faith-based question I could fling at him. And every question that I had and that I asked, he countered with the truth of scripture, which he knew. He was not living at the moment, but it was tucked in there. And so as he said the words of God, I had full assurance. I knew that what he was saying was right. But it also really angered me because I, that was not my life reality and it wasn't his either. And so there was conviction both ways in that car. We rode probably the next hour in complete silence because of what God was doing for us. But the word came to me with full assurance and full conviction. That's what Paul is saying. This is how we knew you were God's luck because when the word came, came with power, came with assurance and with conviction. And how did they respond? So they responded to that word with changed hearts and lives. Okay, so let's keep looking at this. The power that God's word brings is powerful to change our minds, our hearts, our lives, because the Holy Spirit is at work within it, right? He was sharing the gospel with them. What, what was the gospel that they were hearing? It was exactly the same gospel message that we hear today. So we have this God the Father that they were very familiar with, who loved and adored and created them and us for relationship, right? Who is holy, perfect, good, loving all the time. And then we have us and the Thessalonians who were not holy, good, and loving all the time, who were putting other things in their lives in the place that God deserved. So for them, that looked like getting drunk and worshiping idols and lying. Those are some of the things we find in Scripture. For us, we can fill in the blank. Maybe it's gossiping. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's kids. Maybe it's substances. Maybe it's any other number of things. Maybe it's just ourselves. But whatever the case, that sin has separated us from God. And God was not satisfied with that. And so he chose to come to earth himself in the person of Jesus Christ and to live the one and only perfect death. And as he went to the cross, he took our sins because he didn't have any of his own. That was God's solution. We know that from before the beginning of time. That was the greatest act of love I think there has ever been. And such an act of love demands a response from each one of us. And so what was their response? How does this letter say they responded to that act of love after they learned about it? And we can see here. So we see that their response was, Our gospel came not simply with words, but with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord in spite of severe suffering. You welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And I'll pause right there for a second. So what did they do? They stopped doing other things. They stopped what life looked like before and they started following Paul and the Lord Jesus. Right? They started following the mature believers that God put in their lives all around them. There are many things we can learn from people who are one step or many steps ahead of us in our faith walk, and they did that. Not only that, we keep reading, and so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. So three weeks they've been believers, right? And they're quickly soaking up everything they can. And even though they were new believers, they became examples to others, so one step ahead, what they're learning, they're pouring out for the sake of someone else. And it's working because people are talking about this. Word is spreading about their community and about their faith. So this is really beautiful. We need to do that. The word for example there is, a, is one of my favorite words in scripture. It's tupas. And it's a Greek word that's also used in 2 Timothy where we have this other great picture of discipleship. And two pass, I like to imagine it like an old-fashioned typewriter where the letter would make an impression on the paper, right? And it goes boom, and then when it lifts back up, there's this model or this mold or this form left on the paper. That's what that's picturing. That same blow, that impression, that form, that model or example, two pass, like a typeset. He says that we were that model or example to you. And now you are the same model or example already to others. You're leaving a mark, an impression on their lives that we invested in you. He's encouraging them that they're doing that so early. And that's what we are to do too. We know that faith comes from hearing the word of God. Scripture tells us that in Romans. But also, we can't just hear, hear, hear all the time. Or we feel guilty because we're not sure how to live it out. We need someone to show us how to live out this lifestyle with Jesus. How to study our Bibles. How to pray with others. How to share our faith and not sound so weird, right? Go out and practice it together. How to be godly moms and wives and workers and students and whatever that looks like. We need other people, and Jesus knew that. When he used his very last breaths on earth, we see in Matthew 28 that he gives this Great Commission message, and he says with the last words that he has for his followers, he says, go and make disciples of all the nations, everybody you can reach. Make disciples just like I have done for you, right? And so that's important to him, and he knows that it is for our good to do that. he calls us to make disciples. That's what we see here too. And we keep reading verse 8. It says the Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known where? Everywhere. So they're sounding forth the good news. They're speaking the truth about Jesus and they are showing a changed life. That preaches. Revelation twelve eleven says they, meaning believers, overcame him, meaning the enemy, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Blood of the lamb, truth of the gospel. Word of their testimony is their life story. You and I all have one as we're walking with God. And those two things are powerful, right? And that's what we're to be doing. We're sharing truth. We're sharing our life. That's what discipleship is all about also. So those things preach. So news went out from this tiny group of people all over the world. People on foot traveling through the Ignatian Way through this area. People on boat. Remember, this is a strategic commercial port. So ships are going out all over the world. And they're talking about this group of people. You should see these Thessalonians. They gave up a life of privilege. Their whole lives are different. And they're talking about it. And word of the gospel is going forth. And the last thing that we see is, first of all, Paul says, we don't have to say anything about it because your example is going out. And then he says in, in nine and, verse 9 and 10, they tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So they are living with a sense of urgency. Jesus is coming back. He is coming back, and that should make us at every season and every day of our lives live with a sense of urgency and importance. We can make a difference even when our kids are sick and throwing up, even when we have babies, even when we're newly empty nesters. Whatever the case may be, God has someone to bring alongside of us and say, Look, I'm not doing this perfectly, but here's what I know. Why don't you come along and we'll pursue Jesus together. Right, And that leaves a mark. That makes an impression that will change that other person's life forever. So that's what he's calling us to do. And let's look just a little bit farther. And we'll see one more thing. And so I have hearts and stars and things in my Bible. Because these last verses are so precious to me as we keep reading. So we'll look into chapter 2 of First Thessalonians. And we'll see... Paul had to defend his ministry. Remember, he was chased out of town very quickly. And so those other folks swooped in and tried to discredit everything that he and Silas and Timothy had done. So we see at the beginning of chapter 2, he's defending the integrity of his ministry. And he says, you know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. So first of all, it's successful, right? You all are there and you're running with your faith. You are a success and it is good what we've did together. And he goes on to talk about the strong opposition that he had faith had, had faced in Philippi and all, also in Thessalonica. And so Paul speaks to the authenticity of his message and says it I would not have been sharing this gospel message amidst this awful suffering and persecution if it weren't the real deal. And he shares that authenticity of his life and his changed work in life. He goes on to talk about, in verse 3, For the appeal we make doesn't spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. So he talks about the purity of the message that they brought. They lived on the Ignatian Way, which is a very famous highway where tons of people traveled. Lots of religious folks of gobs of different religions, salespeople, politicians, even magicians. And every person that walked that path was clamoring for the attention of the people all around. They wanted to get their attention. They also wanted to get their money. So Paul is speaking, look, that was not what we were doing with you, right? We didn't even take money from you, he says later. We were there because of the truth of Jesus. So our motives were pure. We were trying to please God and not men. We stuck with the word and never um, never countered that word even when it wasn't popular, okay? So the purity of his message. They were others-oriented, not about their own glory, And then let's look down to verse 7 and 8. And this is so sweet, I think, especially for us who are um, in this room hearing this. So Paul says, As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were, were gentle among you like a mother caring for her little children. Moms of little children, mom rocking baby in the back of room, what does it feel like to be a mother it's hard, right? Newborn babies, try as they might, they're take, 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 and moms are give, 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 right? That's how they're supposed to be. It is so difficult to parent. You're exhausted. You're constantly giving of yourself, right? It is humbling. Your kids see you at your worst. They know when you don't have all the answers. That is spiritual parenting too, It's hard. You're giving of yourself. You don't have all the answers. If you open your life to them, they're probably going to see that you don't have everything all together. And that is okay because you're pointing them to the one who does. Spiritual parenting is very much like parenting babies. So remember that what you are doing is good. Inviting others along and loving them to the best of your ability and pointing them to the one who will love them perfectly is good. God wants us to do that. And he goes on and he says, oh, by the way, kids do grow up, right? And mothers even farther along than me tell me this. It's so fun because one day they will have kids of their own and they'll understand all the things that you're doing for them now. And you even get to kind of be friends with them. That's really fun. My kids are starting to laugh at things that I think are funny right now. And it's really fun. So disciples are going to do that too. One day they'll start pouring out for the sake of somebody else. And you link arms in your peers now. And you've got other people to run after Jesus with. That is when, I promise you, it gets really fun. Okay, so the baby smiles back one day, that newborn baby. And the same is true for your disciples. Okay, verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. That is precious. That is the verse that has the heart around it in my Bible. Okay, so what, what is happening there? Paul is giving us the roadmap for discipleship. He says, we loved you so much, we gave you the gospel of God, but not only that, our lives as well. He gives truth, and he gives life. He gives knowledge, and he gives care. We've all heard the phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. Right? He's opening the doors of his life and inviting others along. He's sharing wisdom, but he's also sharing everything about himself. They can see it all. They're sharing life on life. That is the roadmap for discipleship. So in the next several verses, Paul goes on to encourage the steadfastness of their faith and that they will live out holy lives. Okay, and, and then he goes on down, and I want to grab two more verses. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians two nineteen and 3, 8. Okay, and he says this, For what is our hope, our joy, or the crown in which we will glory in the presence of our Lord Jesus when he comes? Is it not you? And that word is really emphasized, so he's kind of shouting you at them. Indeed, you are our glory and joy. So those that we bring to Jesus and those we help mature in their faith, they are our crown. They are our joy. They are fun and joyful. Now they will enrich our lives in many ways, even as we are struggling on their behalf. But also, they are glory for all eternity. There's a crown awaiting you for those that you are leading to Jesus and leading deeper in their faith. And that should really give us great hope. That's what that picture is there. And he says a little bit farther, verse eight, three eight. For now we really live since you are standing firm in the Lord. So I love this picture he's showing us that life, we really live if you are standing firm in the Lord, right? There's this picture of life that is overwhelming them because of the joy of knowing that those people that they had invested in are living firm in the Lord, right? So they couldn't make it back to see them at that time. Tim, Paul says he really wanted to, but he couldn't. The enemy was keeping him from doing that. Thank goodness, by the way, because otherwise we wouldn't have these letters. God works all things for um, our good and his glory. But he did send Timothy back. And Timothy brought good news that they were really living out their faith despite the opposition. And that was life-giving to Paul and Silas. Right? Remember, Jesus said in John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and have it to the fullest measure. So he said here, for now we really live since you're standing firm in the Lord. In that John verse, life to the fullest measure, the Greek word is perisos, and it means exceedingly, abundantly overflowing to the fullest measure. So you are meant to be that vessel, that container of God's life and truth. But it's not meant just for you. Jesus wants you to have that to the fullest fullest measure to the exceedingly abundantly overflowing and who would the overflow of God's life and truth be not for you it would overflow for others so do you really want to live that full life if you do fall in love every day with Jesus and don't just stop there link arms invite other people to pursue Jesus with you right and as you are doing that show them what you're learning seasoned mothers mentors show them how you've learned to study the word to pray invite them to learn from your example open your doors of imper- imperfection right but don't stop there call them to go and do that for others also empower them right you are qualified jesus said to make disciples of others that's when life is full and good so my prayers are with you in your ministry i'm very thankful to have been here with you and i will continue praying that god will bring you all grace and peace as you're going into this next stage of discipleship